Can we totally dethrone its power from our lives so that all of our work is devoted to God and God's ways? As Christians, I don't think you can blame it on some evil Hollywood agenda. I think we've abandoned the playing field. The spirit of David and the cracks of the walls and the schemes that we are all running. Is you've got to make sure that your identity is solidly rooted in who you are in Christ and not in having money. If we were to have a business, what would we do with the money? You can only sleep in one bed. Woke up terrified in the middle of the night. We stole my whole house, was shaken. We have been put here on earth to create, not to mimic what might have happened historically. For me, as I pitch, I'm not looking just for the yes, I'm looking for my partners. But I tried Where my heart is most encouraged as a pastor is when I see generosity as the overflow of someone's intimacy with Jesus. And there's a lot of people who want to use their influence to change the world. So how do you actually do it? Investing can be complicated, but it doesn't need to be a burden. Stewardship of the resources that God has entrusted us with is full of responsibility, analysis, and yet it is also a unique opportunity for us all to come to know God's love for us more and His purposes in the world as we seek His wisdom. Here is a place to find other investors who seek the same answers you do and share their stories of seeking to know the best investor and giver of all time. Come for the podcast, stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Investing. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. This is John Coleman, and today we have our monthly Marks on the Markets podcast, where we find experts from around the industry to dig into the most prominent trends in the markets and the underlying economy, as well as within Faith Driven Investing. Today, we have three extraordinary people on the call who can guide us through this. The first is Matt Monson from Sovereigns Capital. Matt leads the public equities capability at Sovereigns and has a long and distinguished career at other equity managers around the United States. We have Daniel Phillips from Eversource Wealth Advisors. Daniel is the director of investments at Eversource. He helps to position individual portfolios as well as to select and screen investments for Eversource and also has a long and established track record in the industry and a deep understanding of financial markets and the instruments that access them. And then finally, our dear friend, Ross Roggensack of Oak City Consulting. Ross is a founder and the leader of Oak City. He advises large institutions about their portfolios and selects investments on their behalf and has been a longstanding, not only participant in the financial markets, but also real pioneer and longstanding contributor to faith-driven investing and someone I know a lot of other folks in the industry look up to for his innovation in that space. So thanks so much for joining us, gentlemen, and we're excited to dive in. Good to be here. So just to start, again, we are living through exciting financial times right now and sometimes rocky financial times. Matt, I was hoping you could kick us off with just your opinion on what the latest is in financial markets. What's driving the declines this year and what do you see happening in the remainder of the year? Thanks for the question, John. Good to be with you today. So if we rewind and start back on January 1st, what we've seen is that January 1st through the recent trough on June 16th, the Russell 3000, you know, broad market indicator for market returns was down 24%. And 24% is a big number. In fact, it was the fifth worst pullback that we've seen in the last 32 years. 
And so for perspective, the Great Recession back in 2008, 2009, we were down 56% over a year and a half. And when COVID started, we were down 34% over two months. And the two other large pullbacks we saw were 2000 and 2002 connected to the tech bubble on 9-11. And those were also down in the 36, 30% range, both of them. So that leaves this 24% pullback that we saw through June 16 as the fifth largest since 1990. So since June 16, though, the market's been up 6.7%, which leaves us now year to day down about 18.5%. And no one really knows whether the recent trough on June 16 was the bottom of this pullback or if we have further downside to go. If we look at the data, though, there's two key things that I look at just to assess where we're at. First is the multiple on earnings. And then second is the absolute level of earnings. And so if we look at the multiple on earnings, you know, over the last 20 years, the S&P 500 has traded about 16 times forward earnings. And as of January 1st, when we were at a peak in the market, we were trading at 22 times forward earnings. And since that time, we've fallen down to 16 and a half times today. And so now we're back in line with historical earnings multiples. In terms of where earnings are at, you've seen a really nice run-up in earnings. You know, pre-COVID, when things were, I think I'd say fairly normalized in 2019, you had $138 of earnings in the S&P 500. Whereas consensus earnings for the 12 months forward today is 237, which is a big number. So if instead you take that 138 pre-COVID number 2019, and you were to grow that at something normalized, call it 8%, and then layer in all the incremental inflation we've seen above and beyond normal run rates, you know that would put us at a number about 15% lower than where consensus is today. So is there about 15% lower earnings that could roll through consensus? I think there is. And, you know, could we see that as an incremental drawdown in markets? I think so. But that doesn't mean that markets will get all the way there. It's possible that they do. And it's also possible that markets won't go all the way there and people will start buying in and buying the dip. So we don't know what will happen. But as we try to gauge what our downside looks like, that's what we think about. One thing that I think is interesting is that off a trough, there's usually a really fast recovery. So within the first 90 days after those big seven troughs that I just mentioned, you know, greater than 20% drawdowns in the market, that first 90 days out of the trough, markets are up 27%. And so investors are really rewarded for being fully invested at the bottom. And so as I just think through markets, you know, if the drawdown feels significant and if we feel like the multiple is a reasonable multiple on a normalized level of earnings, I'm focused on assessing how much more downside there could be, but also thinking through how much upside there's going to be coming out of the trough and not wanting to miss those first few days and weeks of it. And Daniel and Ross, just building on what Matt's saying there, obviously a couple of fears that he's highlighting are that this inflationary environment, which has got people scared, will be doubled with a recessionary environment, one in which the economy contracts. We had a little bit of contrary news this morning where jobs are actually looking better than anticipated. As you hear what Matt said with, you know, as much as 15% additional downside in the markets, although that's certainly no guarantee of that, how are you thinking about the remainder of the year? Do you see those risks as high? Are you keeping an eye out for a recession right now? Would love to get your thoughts on what you think the potential risks moving forward for the rest of the year are. I think that we never really know. I've been around for all of the dips that Matt was talking about. So I'm the old guy on the call. So I've seen all this before and you never 
there is no bottom. You know, we don't know the bottom until well after. We don't know if we're in recession till well after. I think the biggest surprise for us this year, not surprise, but the biggest pain point for us has been the bond market. The bond market is usually the way that we can lever against a big drawdown. And the bond market through June 30th, just the Bloomberg Ag is down over 10. Corporates are down 15% and emerging market bond funds are down over 20%. So this sort of free lunch we've always been used to where we can put bonds up against stocks and it will ease some of that pain, it's only made it worse. And so, you know, positioning is pretty hard right now, unless you're already in cash, unless you're already in something else, it's really difficult to, for example, pull money from bond funds or bonds to put in stocks because they're already down a lot too. So it's a tough position if you aren't already ready for it. You're in a tough spot. Sure. So I would just add to that, that just given where we are, following up on Matt and Ross's comments, it's just going to be very difficult for the Fed to manage inflation back 600 basis points or so to their policy target without creating a recession. And that really hasn't been done before. And I just think the real question is, how long does it take us to enter a recession? And then how deep is that recession going to be? We know it's coming at some point, but timing is always just the big variable. We're in the late part of the economic cycle from all of the coincident indicators, and the Fed's just using very blunt hammers of monetary policy to create enough demand destruction to cool the economy off. And we've seen the market's response today, but the Fed isn't still halfway done given their guidance. At the same time, on the other hand, corporations and households are overall in pretty good shape. Strong corporate profits, strong cash balances, And the employment numbers that, John, that you mentioned, we had a great employment number this day, although initial claims are starting to lift off again. So that's the counterbalance. And so the question, of course, is when. Inflation is stretching everyone, especially those in the lower incomes that are most impacted and haven't recovered yet from COVID. But I go back to it would be really helpful if you guys could let me know when and how deep. So (laughs) We'd all like to know that. Maybe just to pick up on what you're talking about, Daniel, because I think this is a really important topic. And then we'll circle back to how y'all are thinking about positioning your clients' portfolios, which I think is an important thing to touch on. Obviously, the question right now is how the Fed and the federal government in the U.S. can implement their tools to try and tame inflation while preventing a severe recession. You know, the danger whenever you're trying to raise interest rates and tame inflation is that you go too far too fast and tip us into a more dramatic recession or that you don't go far enough and we end up with both an inflationary and a stag environment, stagflation, like the late 1970s. Would love your perspectives on just how you think the federal government and the Federal Reserve are responding right now and what tools you would encourage policymakers to use to ensure that we do tame inflation, but do so in a way that's not too dramatically impactful to the underlying economy. And maybe Daniel, would you mind starting there? Sure, so the two big policy tools you mentioned are monetary policy and fiscal policy. And on the fiscal side, the Biden administration has been noticeably silent about any new stimulus measures really for the last several months after pushing very hard last year. So they've gotten the message and they've pulled back And so don't expect support from the economy on that side or more stimulus on that side anytime soon. On the monetary policy front, the Fed is now aggressively raising rates. And some people would argue that they're already going too far too fast. 
but they are really trying to avoid a situation in which inflation expectations get ingrained in the consumer psyche and corporate expectations, and we have a runaway situation like we had several decades ago. And so they're moving fast. We'll know in hindsight, with the benefit of hindsight, whether they were right or wrong, but it's hard to differ with them for that aggressive response that they're now having after being very slow and claiming it was a transitory problem for the last 12 months um, leading up to their more aggressive stance earlier this year. When it is, you know, and Matt, I want to get your perspective as well, but it is such an interesting confluence of events right now. I mean, we had almost a decade and a half, actually, very low interest rates with fiscal stimulus at various times. COVID obviously led to a ton of fiscal stimulus, even though employment recovered very quickly out of that. And then we've had these supply chain problems, whether in gas and oil or in other parts of the economy, which are also inflationary, they raise prices. And so there's been this confluence of easy money, uh, fiscal stimulus and supply chain disruptions that have really ratcheted up inflation. And it was unfortunate that it was thought of or characterized as transitory for so long when it did seem to be structural earlier and and earlier action might have been helpful. Matt, as you think about that question of the tools that our policymakers have at their disposal, what do you hope to see from the Federal Reserve or the federal government moving forward in order to manage this problem? I think the Fed will be able to accomplish demand destruction through raising rates. The other side of the equation, though, is supply. And as the both of you have already commented on briefly, If we see China move away from a zero COVID policy and start putting people back to work and delivering goods, then that starts to ease supply chain issues. And we've also seen through just a really strong economy over the last couple of years, there's a number of businesses, both domestically and overseas, that brought on more capacity. And some of that capacity has already come on. Some of the capacity, you know, like semiconductors, you know, everyone sees that in the headlines. Some of that capacity is coming on in a year from now or whenever that might be. And so both sides of that equation are important because if you destroy demand, but supply is going down, then you could still see high prices. Whereas if you destroy demand and you see supply neutral or going up, then I can see inflation coming back in check. And as Daniel said, I think that a recession is not just an obvious conclusion, but it's probably a necessary conclusion to bring inflation back in check. And the faster we can do it, the better, because otherwise you can enter this death spiral of, you know, picture it where there's high prices of goods on the shelves. And so the worker goes to the employer and says, I need higher wages because I'm getting pinched on what I'm buying. And next thing you know, they make higher wages so they can afford higher priced goods on the shelves. And it just goes in cycles because it, you know, there's no obvious end to that. Ross, I want to come back to you because you were talking about the fact that, you know, with bonds also suffering right now, there hasn't been an easy answer to positioning client portfolios. You advise sophisticated institutions with large pools of capital. How are you helping those institutions weather this period of volatility right now? And how are you positioning their portfolios to do that effectively? Well, like today's news, so often, and again, I'm the old curmudgeon in the crowd here, John, that it's often just noise. And you have to be careful to differentiate news from noise and what makes you do something. And so this spring, we finally had enough news that it felt to us like it was time for us to make some adjustments. The Federal Reserve kind of reversed course. Inflation was not transitory. And then the Russian invasion of Ukraine, all those three things together made us stop and finally reduce equities a bit, 
pull back fixed income as much as we could. It was already at a, a minimum level, so we pulled it back more. We raised cash, and we added to our allocation to real assets, dirt, oil and gas, things that are inflationary in that way. And so we've already made those changes, so we have a lot of cash and a lot of real assets and less equities. I think if you're scrambling now to adjust, you're late. It doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means it's a lot more difficult because of what I said before with with just a 50-50 allocation is down 11% through June. That's a really hard time to try to reallocate those assets. So that's what we've done. I do think, as Matt was saying before, equities are getting a lot more interesting. I think that if you look at stocks over five and 10-year rolling periods, if you're a long-term investor, it's very seldom that you lose money over a five or a 10-year rolling period. It's really hard to do. And so we think um, you don't want to panic here. Certainly you should be eyes more wide open to adding to, especially to U.S. small caps, value-oriented companies that are much cheaper. They've gotten beat up a lot worse than large cap even. So we're looking in those kind of areas right now. Daniel, any differences in the way that you're thinking about advising individuals right now? Obviously, you have the opportunity to speak with a number of individuals. What are you advising them during this period? Right. Well, just for context, at Eversource Wealth Advisors, obviously, we're asset allocators for private individuals and families. And we really allocate to three major asset classes, equities, fixed income, and then the private markets section of the broad alternative space, which would include private credit, private real estate, and private equity. And so when we're thinking about the big themes we've all mentioned that are impacting markets in our clients' lives, it's just very important to us that we have a thorough understanding of each client's objectives, their risk tolerance, and their time and liquidity constraints, because that's what really dictates how defensive or opportunistic we can be in this environment. So back to your question, headed into 2022, we saw very elevated valuations in both U.S. equity and fixed income markets and sectors. And many of our clients were underallocated to private markets. So we were taking advantage of the opportunity to allocate to more defensive strategies that would perform well in a already very inflationary environment. Those included private market strategies like adding the core or value-add real estate, primarily focused on multifamily or direct lending to U.S. middle market companies, primarily in senior-secured floating-rate debt funds. Now, as this correction in equity and fixed-income markets has continued, that opportunity set, I would say, is shifting. And as a general rule, private markets tend to lag public market valuations, and public markets tend to recover more quickly, as already been mentioned today. And as this correction continues, if it continues in a significant way, uh, we would probably shift our capital allocation focus back to public markets, equity, and fixed income on the margin. That's super helpful, Daniel. Ross, I want to come back to something that you touched on earlier and then maybe also ask Matt to comment if he has anything to add. As we zoom out from the U.S. economy, you talked about emerging markets earlier, Ross. I know that you watch those markets closely. You talked about the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on global markets. If investors are thinking about their international exposure, what are the similarities and differences between some of those international markets right now and the U.S. markets? And are there opportunities or risks that you see abroad uh, that are very different than those we're facing at home? Well, they're certainly, they've been exposed in Russia and in China. Those have been terrible markets to be in. 
it's been a real focus on U.S. equities for so long that you have to wonder just a reversion to the mean. Will international and emerging come back? And we've avoided international markets mostly. We're in U.S. and emerging. We've avoided Russia and China as we have a freedom waiting to our emerging markets investment. But I'm certainly curious about emerging markets. We've also had, at the same time we've had this profound rally in U.S. stocks, we've had a profound rally in the dollar, which is really hurtful for international and emerging market equities. And so should we get a situation, for example, like China, who is about to really stimulate their economy? I don't know when it's going to happen. We all know it's going to happen. And when that happens, we're probably going to see the dollar go down a bit, which would really be helpful for emerging international stocks. So we're sort of keeping our eye on China right now. We're not investors in China, but we certainly think that can drive returns going forward and emerging. So I would certainly keep my eye on that happening. And if it does, you should start to see some money flow back to emerging and international equities for sure. And before I ask Matt to pick up on that comment, Ross, one thing I love that you mentioned in passing is uh, that Oak City's incorporated is this idea of a freedom waiting and monitoring the ethical behavior of countries outside the United States to determine whether you have exposure. And, you know, for a long time, people have argued on two fronts. First, that that's the right thing to do from a values perspective. And secondly, that long term, that's actually the financially beneficial thing to do and that you have higher hopes for countries that are respectful of human rights, that are more prone to democracy, et cetera, than you would of autocracies or countries that are disrespectful of human rights. And I think certainly that Russia in particular has proven an affirmation of that thesis right now. And and I think a lot of the same risk factors are at play in China right now, not just with some of the ethical lapses that people rightly highlight, but also the risk factors that if they were to invade Taiwan or if there were other international disruptions that they could face a similar contraction or dynamic like Russia. So I think that's something that Oak City has done that I find really interesting and both aligned from a values perspective and also from an economic perspective. Matt, are you seeing anything substantively different in international markets right now? Or do you have a sense for other factors that might be at play? Yeah, I would say I'm in full agreement with Ross's comments. I thought those were spot on. Uh, A couple of those that really resonate with me are just, you know, kind of waiting for some of that mean reversion and non-U.S. equities to occur and then any of the strength in the dollar to unwind. But in general, we're domestic equity investors. And at these valuations, we're excited. I want to pivot a little bit now just away from the pure economy. One of the benefits of all three of you is you're not just really smart investors, you're also deep in the faith-driven investing movement, which is obviously important to the folks listening to this podcast. Daniel, I might ask you to lead off and then Ross, I would love for you to follow if you don't mind. Why don't you just give us an update on the state of faith-driven investing as you see it? What progress are you seeing in faith-driven investing right now? What trends are you most excited about and where do we need to make more progress? So in the public's markets within the last year, I think the primary thing I've noticed is a marked change in the conversation moving away from an emphasis on avoiding companies with objectionable practices to more of an emphasis on engagement. So, John, I think your message that all investing is impact investing is getting through and investors are starting to wake up to the influence that they're giving these large asset managers like BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. And the ESG practices, those firms are pushing in boardrooms all across corporate America. And some of those policies are good, they're helpful, 
but others don't align well with the Christian worldview, and they don't value the flourishing of people, which is you know where God's heart is. So I'm thinking of even a conversation this last week with a client who was just very focused on this, just in an active, vocal way. So I think that there's just going to be a growing demand for asset managers that will build excellent products like Vanguard and BlackRock to take their stewardship responsibilities seriously from a Christian worldview. That's great, Dana. Ross, what are you seeing right now in the evolution of the industry? Well, usually the institutional market leads the retail market, but the opposite's happened here. And we've seen the smaller retail market, individual investor, lion's den sort of investor lead us out. And so we're starting to slowly see better and better quality. I think about people like Victor and James at Lumos. I think about Patrick Fisher at Creation. I think of other people that are very high quality investors that are in our world now in the institutional space. And so what we're starting to open up to is that there's real quality in solving the problems like education and world poverty and other things that are in front of us from people that are well-trained and well-positioned that are, you know, have excellent product to offer us, to offer to our clients. And so it's really exciting the last five years. I mean, five years ago, we really didn't have very much, to be honest, uh, to offer. And it is exploding and getting better. And I think, you know, like Daniel said, back to your all investing is impact investing. I think it's getting through. I think the ESG movement is getting through to the faith led movement to say, hey, we can do this. And so really highly qualified people with pristine backgrounds are coming to the market. And that's very exciting for us on the institutional side, for sure. That is encouraging. And Matt, I know you're very focused on the public markets and on driving faith-driven investing in the public markets, but aware of others doing great things as well. Um, What's your view on how the public markets are evolving? And are you seeing the same thing that Daniel is in terms of engagement and more positive screening as well? Yeah, building off of Daniel's comments, which I fully agree with, you know, the market in public equities is really built on a foundation of negative screening. And those tools have worked really well for us for a long time. But I see a transition towards, as Daniel mentioned, coming alongside companies and CEOs that are doing incredible things for the flourishing of man. And what we've found through data is that you can stand alongside companies like that and achieve investment returns that are very attractive vis-a-vis the market. And through strategies like that, you can also deliver impact, which is historically something that's been difficult to achieve in the public equity markets. In private markets, it's easier to achieve impact coming alongside companies, delivering them primary dollars they can put to work that you can see the impact on employees, communities, customers. Whereas in the public markets, impact has historically been more challenging because you're buying secondary shares and the companies don't really know who their shareholders are. But what we've seen is the ability for investors to come alongside CEOs to encourage them with the best practices they see from other faith-driven CEOs and to drive spiritual integration deeper across corporate America. So I think it's a really exciting time for this next leg forward in what faith-driven public equity can do. That is exciting. And as Ross mentioned, you know, the space has evolved so much over the last five years. It still has further to go. You all highlighted some great progress that we've made so far. If you had a magic wand to kind of wave and introduce additional strategies or additional ways of approaching faith-driven investing here, 
What's the next horizon for the industry? What do you think are the big gaps right now? And what are you looking for? And Daniel, perhaps you could start if you don't mind. Sure. So just back to just my earlier comment, I think we need to see more institutional level asset managers come into the public market space and create high quality product, uh, particularly product that can gain scale on the index side and really compete with the high quality products that BlackRock and Vanguard have created, but product that really focuses on engagement from a Christian worldview perspective with U.S. corporations and really balances out a lot of the pressure that these corporations are getting from the other side of the spectrum. So we would be very excited to see movement on that front. Ross, anything on your mind on that topic? Well, I was thinking the other day, I would really love to see somebody figure out how to invest in the ability to clean water across the world. I think that it's really hard for us. And if we could find a faith-driven kind of organization that would try to tackle that, it affects so many people. I would love to see more things that affect human flourishing, like affordable health care and, again, clean water, a better environment that can sort of love our neighbors in a way that's tangible and also be good investments for our institutions. So I would, I would love to see that. I'm looking forward. If anybody wants to holler at me, I'm glad to listen. Well, as we conclude our podcast today, I want to ask a couple of questions. So first, I'm going to do a lightning round and put you all on the spot with a couple of basic questions about the economy. And then we'll conclude just with a quick question to each of you about what you're learning from God through his word right now that you think might be helpful to others, just to prepare you for that, if you don't mind, in a few sentences. But the lightning round first, and maybe as we go through this, I'll ask Matt to lead us off. Maybe Daniel, you go second, or Ross, you go third. What do you expect inflation to be over the course of the next 12 months, if you had to put a number to it? I would bet that we come down from the level of 8% we're at today and we start to inch our way down. We won't reach all the way down to the Fed's target, but I think that we'll start making progress in that direction. Higher. I say 10%. So as the supply chain eases in China, we'd hope to see that trend down more towards 5% towards the end of the year. But it's there's still a significant part of that that's structurally persistent still without the Fed creating enough demand destruction. Got a little divergence of views there. Yeah, sorry. I think I don't think the Fed can handle it. I think inflation goes higher, oil goes higher, grains go higher, and they just can't. But who knows? That's why it's a market, right, John? <laughs> I'm a little nervous. Well, God's in control. The Fed is not. Ross has seen more cycles than the rest of us, I think. So that <laughs> does give me pause. Uh, similar question. Do you think we're in recession right now and if we slip into recession, how long do you think it lasts? Matt, maybe lead us off. Uh, I don't think that we are yet. And just my gut is that if the Fed could manage it and we slip into one, I think it's a shorter term, more shallow recession. But maybe that's too much of a glass half full kind of answer. I'd love to hear from Ross second because he had a really good contradiction last time around. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we are in a recession. I think that I don't really worry about it. I think we're in a bear market for sure. And I think that we're in a position where the government is not our friend and the Fed is not our friend. If they're raising rates and if the government's trying to figure out ways to spend more money, it doesn't bode well for capital markets for a while until we figure out maybe we get through the midterm elections and maybe there's some hope that comes through that we can kind of right the ship. But for now, yeah, in recession or not, we're in a place where 
it's usually not great for capital markets. Right. Well, the official arbiter of who decides when a recession starts will tell us, I'm sure, <laughs> six to 12 months down the road. Mm-hmm. But my instinct would be just know from how strong current corporations and individuals are, financially speaking, that we're fast moving in that direction. Inflation has really been like a rubber band. It's just stretching, stretching, stretching. And the Fed is trying to ease it back without popping it pretty bad. Last lightning round question. This time next year, is the S&P 500 higher or lower than it is today? Let's start with Ross. Well, it's always a coin flip one year, right? So I think the odds are higher. 60-40 is usually the way it is. So it's probably higher, although we'll see how much higher. Daniel, what do you think? So I have to contradict Ross just for the sake of argument (laughs) and say probably lower, but there's no confidence going into that answer right there. Matt, any difference of opinion? You might be the tiebreaker here. I would place my bet on the same or a little bit higher. Okay. Okay. So we've got a relatively optimistic view of the public markets over the next year. Just as we conclude, gentlemen, given that we are the Faith Driven Investor podcast, I wanted to go around and just ask you for a brief word of encouragement, something that you're learning from God uh, through his word right now that you think might be useful to others. And Daniel, uh, if you don't mind, maybe you could start. Sure. So just most recently, I think I've been convicted for myself and our firm by a passage from the end of Colossians 3 that is addressed to servants that talks about working diligently unto the Lord, not by eye service or people pleasing, but with sincerity, fearing God, because it's him we're serving and he is the one who's going to give us our inheritance or our reward. And it's so easy in the business of finance and investing, I think, to get distracted and to pivot with people's perceptions But we do, I mean, we serve the great perceiver who sees all and knows all our hearts and he's after our hearts. So I just want us to bring that mindfulness, myself and our firm, everyone who works there to work each day and serving our clients. Awesome word, awesome word. Ross, what would you offer today? Uh, Two things real fast. I'm reading a book called The Economics of the Parables by Robert Sirico. It's really interesting and it's just a, it's just a lot of moral economic wisdom taken straight from the parables that I would recommend to folks. I haven't finished it yet, to be honest, but just received it. And it goes through parable by parable. I think he covers 14 of them. The other thing just on my mind is the assassination of Shinzo Abe in Japan just kind of should remind us all. I was thinking about what would have happened if after Ronald Reagan left office, if he were assassinated. And that's what the people in Japan are going through today. And so it should take our mind off of whether Elon Musk is going to buy Twitter or what the Fed's going to do. There's more important things to think about than those little things that really don't affect us day to day. Very true. Very true. And I know everyone's sympathies are with Shinzo Abe's family today and with the people of Japan. Thank you for bringing that up, Ross. Uh, Matt, close us out. What are you learning right now that you'd want to share? You know, I've just been drawn towards a bias to action. And there's this verse it's a little bit of a life verse for me in the end of luke 9 where it says anyone who puts her hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for service in the kingdom and you know every time i feel like i'm really being directly led i'll assess it but i'm not gonna sit and wait on it for 12 months i you know really have been moving towards a bias to action and, and it's just something that resonates deeply with me well gentlemen an excellent session today we have matt monson from sovereigns capital daniel phillips from eversource wealth advisors and Ross Roggensack from Oak City. We are very grateful you joined us today and very grateful for the advice you gave us. Thanks so much. 
Thank you, John. Thanks, John. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve this community and see listeners come in from more than 100 countries. Faith-driven investing can be a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a group study with other investors looking to get the same answers to questions you have and find great community as they do so. There's no cost, no catch. In person or online, you can meet an hour a week with other peers from your backyard or the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvesting.org. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends. Executive producer Justin Foreman, intro mixed and arranged by Summer Dregs, audio and editing by Richard Barley. Our theme song is Sweet Ever After by Ellie Holcomb.